chapter 20. We're on commandment number 7, which is found in verse 14. So I'll encourage you to put your eyes on God's Word this morning. I know I often talk about the value of opening up a physical Bible, but if you would prefer to, or if it's easier for you perhaps to read it from your phone, feel free to look at your phone too. I think God's Word is God's Word wherever we are and however we see it, by whatever means. As you're doing that, I want to remind you of a couple things on the back table. First of all, we've had two books to give away in the past year, and there's one copy left of each of them. One of them is Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice, and this was kind of the foundational resource for a Sunday school series that we did talking about evangelism um, from a guy whose job it is to evangelize who's also very nervous and afraid about doing it sometimes. So really, really great read. Look how tiny it is, you guys. This is like, if you just said, like, I'm just going to read this just so I can tell Nick that I read it, you could do this in a weekend, like no time, right? So uh, I'm going to set these over here on the table after, well, right now, so that after church, if you'd like to pick them up, these are just to be given away to anybody. This is also the last copy that we have of 10 Words to Live By by Jen Wilkin, which was the women's, one of the women's Bible studies that just ended. And again, also a great resource that I've been looking at weekly for um, this sermon series too. So if you'd like to go deeper um, into a study of Ten Commandments, this is a recommended resource as well. Somebody come and take these after church. You can read them yourself. You can give them away. Do something with them. Lastly, we also have these little um, miniature... Uh, what are we calling these? These are miniature um, gospels, basically. It is a combination of the gospel story across Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are great giveaways as well, so check those out on the back table. Okay, did that give you enough time to get to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14? Again, like many of these commandments, we are going to just take one single solitary verse and talk about it this morning. This is a big one. This is a hard one. This is a hard one to talk about on Communion Sunday when there are kids in the congregation, isn't it? It's a little bit difficult to meet the whole range of how to talk about uh, this issue with people in various ages and various situations of life. So um, I will appreciate your prayer, even for me, as we go through this as well, so that I might listen to the Spirit. All right. Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 14. Very simply put, the commandment number seven is you shall not commit adultery. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look at your word this morning, we are trusting that it has been written for us. It has been written for your people, for all of your people, for all of time. It is necessary for us to examine this topic this morning as we walk through these. We don't want to skip over commandments that are perhaps more uncomfortable or perhaps more infuriating or perhaps create um, a reminder of a deep hurt for many of us, Lord. Father, we trust that this morning you will speak to us as a congregation, that you will speak to us as your church, you will speak to us individually. And that, Lord, as conviction comes, we know that what comes after that is always a guaranteed forgiveness, and always a guaranteed comfort and joy in knowing that. So, Lord, call us to repentance where we need to repent. Lead us in this so that we might see your design for marriage and all the things that come with it. 
We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You shall not commit adultery. Israel receives this commandment right in the beginning of their freedom as their own people. They've been taken out of captivity by the Lord from Egypt. They are now free because of their Savior, because of their God, that many of them had forgotten for 400 years, that many of them had assumed had forgotten them for 400 years. But he's proven himself to be faithful to them. One of the things that he says to Moses in the beginning of this whole story uh, of the Exodus is that he has heard his people. He has not forgotten them. When we see in Scripture that God remembers his people, we shouldn't think about it in the way that we remember things, of course, right? We remember things and we go, oh, I forgot I need to go to that place or do that thing. Or, oh, I remember where I put my car keys. Or we remember because we have forgotten. Yet when God remembers, it is never because he's forgotten. When God remembers, it is because he is about to act. And so we use this human language in part to understand something of the divine mystery of who God is and how God acts. And so when he acts in a saving way, he is acting in a way that proves that he has remembered his people and that his timing is perfect, his means are perfect, and his end is his own perfect glory. That is true across all these commandments, that these commandments are given to God's people Israel in Exodus chapter 20, to preserve and protect the salvation that he has afforded for them. He does not call Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery to come into anarchy and to come into chaos. These commands are not given to be a a burden uh, in, in the way of saying, I want to take away any joy or any delight or any creativity or any good out of your life and put you under the, the yoke of my design. Although, as we see in the New Testament, it serves that purpose for us in one sense, right? In one sense, we are meant to look at this law as a mirror to show us our need for Christ. To show us the dangers of what what comes from wandering outside of those good, protective boundaries that God has established to maintain their freedom. It's funny because when we look at particularly commandment number 7 or commandment number 6 or commandment number 8 or even 9 and 10, we might think, boy, this is a little bit extreme. Because as with all of these commandments, we are dealing at the place of our hearts. And it would be easy for our culture to hear these commandments and say, I have no interest in in Big Brother watching every little thing that I do and judging even my motives and my my, my passing thoughts. This is the extent to which God has saved his people. He has saved them not just for an outward sign of obedience or compliance, but that from our hearts we would worship him. And from our hearts, we would experience the freedom that we now, the church, have in Christ. It's interesting, in in an evangelistic encounter so often, you might talk to somebody who perhaps has never even considered sin in their lives, never heard anything from the church, never heard anything of Christ, and they might say, well, I don't know exactly why. I I don't really get it. It's strange to me. It's foreign. I do pretty nice things on the outside. I can smile at people. I I lend a helping hand here and there. 
it is a foreign thing for us to consider our hearts on our own, but this is what God has called us to. And this is what he has done in our hearts to bring us this freedom so that even at the place of our thoughts and our desires and our intentions, he might have first place in all things. Now this morning, as, as with last week, I, I've wrestled with thinking about how, what is the wide application of this? Because there may be some of us in the room today who are saying, yeah, this is a serious issue for me, and it has been for a long time, and it's driving me crazy. Well, today I'm not necessarily going to give you 10 steps to avoiding adultery in your heart. On the other end of the spectrum, you may be immediately, even if just for a second, thinking to yourself, I've never struggled with this. This has never really been a big issue for me. I've never been bothered by, by things that I see. I'm, I'm able to turn my head quickly. But like that last commandment that we looked at last week as far as uh, verse 13 saying, you shall not murder, and Jesus showing us that if we are angry in our hearts towards someone, we've committed murder in our hearts, we're going to see the same principle here today. And the fact is, is that God word, God's word would call us to recognize that we are never as far away from sin as we give ourselves credit for. We could look at something like adultery and say, I am miles away from this issue. It's not even a thought to go so far. Then why is this one of the ten? Of ten things that God could say to you today, Christian, about what freedom in him looks like about what his requirement is, about what Christ has fulfilled on your behalf. Did you need, to, need Jesus to die for your adultery? His word would say yes. Even if for the simple fact that we can see all throughout Scripture, and as Christina read this morning from Hosea, we see very clearly that the Lord uses the marriage covenant as a picture for the spiritual reality, the spiritual relationship between himself and his people. So I want to give you an outline this morning, just uh, four points that we're going to look at. First, we're going to look at a biblical establishment of marriage. From there, we'll go to the fallen deconstruction of marriage, the blood-bought redemption of marriage, and then the joy-driven exaltation of Christ in marriage. Sorry, that last one's super long, but I couldn't shorten it. Biblical establishment of marriage, fallen deconstruction of marriage, blood-bought redemption of marriage, and the joy-driven exaltation of Christ in marriage. So, Genesis is where we have to start when we think about the establishment of marriage, right? So, if you would like to follow along, I'm going to just look at, briefly, Genesis 2, 23 through 25. And maybe you don't need to follow along. Maybe this is one that will come to your mind very quickly. In verse 23, this is the second account of creation where the focus, the, the spotlight shines down on humanity. And so having created Eve from the side, the rib of Adam, in verse 23 here, the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I want to give you three Four things, actually, from this as far as God's establishing marriage. And that is, first, that God himself is the one who has established marriage. And it started at the creation of Eve. Taking a rib from Adam, he made it into a woman and brought her to him. 
Right? This is God's establishing marriage in an exclusive context. That Adam, this is Eve. This is your wife. He actually even let Adam name her, of course. But this is who I've created to be. Everything that you're not. Right? What a great encouragement that is. It kind of sounds a little, little hey, what, what are you saying here? But in fact, in the perfect Garden of Eden, Adam would not have even had the thought to say, hold on a second. How do you know that she's the one I'm supposed to be with? How do you know she's my soulmate? We haven't even dated yet. We haven't, I haven't had a conversation with her. God establishes marriage as something that he puts together and that he is in sovereign leadership over, no matter how long you dated your spouse. He sovereignly ordained these things to go together. And so it's impossible in one sense for us to say, as so many do in our culture, I am married to the wrong person. If you're married, you're married to the right person, no matter how right or wrong that marriage seems to be working. God has established it to be an exclusive context, something that is not to be touched or entered by any other from the outside. Secondly, God defines marriage after he establishes it. He says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this definition of marriage has a promise at the center of it. A covenant agreement made between a man and a woman to say, I'm going to leave my life behind as it was and start a new life with you. Doesn't this sound beautiful? Isn't this amazing? Can you imagine, just close your eyes for a second and think about what the wedding ceremony in the Garden of Eden must have been like? Especially the fact that it just seems to have happened so quickly. Where's the wedding planner? Where are all the guests? What did they do about chairs? Was there a good meal? I didn't worry about any of that kind of stuff. And a lot of times today, this is why I'm sorry, I've kind of gotten sour towards going to weddings anymore. It's just so bloated with so many details. When at the core, there's this beautiful, exclusive promise that's being made. Thirdly, God blesses this marriage. And he blesses it, I think, here in verse 24. And they shall become one flesh. This act of intimate relationship that is exclusive between a man and a woman is meant to be a blessing. Not meant to be something that is dirty or something that we shouldn't talk about with thanksgiving. It is something that is meant to be held in privacy, of course. This is not something that that we're supposed to be flamboyant about and act like it is nothing. This is something that is meant to be dignified, which is what our title is this morning, that this, this commandment is meant to free us to dignify marriage in our lives, in our church, and with our friends and family. So God establishes an exclusive marriage. He defines it with a covenant. He blesses it with the intimacy union between a husband and a wife, giving them joy and delight in each other. God dignifies marriage. How about this in the very end? The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We know that this this gets reversed after the fall, right? They realized that they were naked once they had eaten from the tree that they weren't supposed to. But right now, unashamed. Nothing hidden. Nothing between them. Trust is established to enjoy this relationship freely. And so because of God's actions in marriage, we are called to celebrate it and to dignify it. And if you want to celebrate it, if you want to see that in Scripture, there's a whole book called Song of Solomon. There's 117 verses about celebrating the goodness of marriage. 
Not one I'm going to do a sermon series on, Lord willing. But it's inspired nonetheless, and it carries the weight of God's word telling us that marriage is a good thing to celebrate. How about dig- the dignity of marriage? Hebrews 13.4 is probably the classic text for this. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The author of Hebrews says that marriage should be honored by all, not just those who are in fact married. If you, perhaps, maybe as a single person, you might be thinking, I don't really know if this applies to me yet. Already right here in Hebrews 13, we're seeing, yeah, it's supposed to be honored by all, celebrated by all, and dignified by all. By God's people for all of time. Called to this kind of attitude towards marriage that clearly, and more and more, is going to stand out in our culture, doesn't it? Very, very different than the way that the world has established what marriage ought to look like in their own image. Rather, we are meant to look at what God has established, what God has designed, what God has blessed, and say, this is the good thing. So how do we get this wrong? Where's the problem? I mean, it's very easy for us to just take this passage and just totally you know, crush the culture into the ground and say they have no idea what they're doing. I mean, there's so many different points, right, where we could say that they've got the, the contents of marriage wrong. It's supposed to be a man and a woman, and people are saying it could be anybody and anything, and pretty soon it's going to be any number of people, any number of things. It could be anything you want it to be. Can you imagine the hurt and the harm that all of that's going to do? That it's already done. And unfortunately, just like in our gospel encounters with non-believers so often, bringing up the matter of sin can often be met by this idea of, I don't really know what you're talking about. I don't understand the cross because I don't think I deserved that. So how could someone else take that from me? Well, what we see in our culture and what, in fact, seeps into our hearts to some degree, otherwise we wouldn't have to look at this ourselves as the church, is a fallen deconstruction of marriage. And I picked that word deconstruction on purpose because it's a very popular word right now. For a lot of people who were going to church growing up or came to church at some point and and at some later point they decided, you know, I'm just done. I don't want anything to do with this. And usually the first thing that goes is the biblical dignity of marriage and a cheapening of the blessing. The fact is is that whether we today are professing Christ as Lord or not, we are going to be affected by the way the world around us defines marriage and defines that relationship. This is all coming from a matter of our disordered desires and our hearts. Because, of course, in our hearts, we, we look at commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, that right there would be enough to say, okay, well, what about marriage? If God's the God of marriage, then it's up to him to define who and what and where and why and how, right? If we can take the first commandment out of the way, then what reason would there be to follow commandment number seven? If somebody doesn't know Christ, if somebody hasn't been redeemed, why should we expect anyone to do the right thing with this? Why should we expect anything but a continued degradation of marriage to continually be falling down the slippery slope, even though many along that slippery slope will realize This has gone too far. No, we shouldn't be changing our genders. We shouldn't be doing these kind of things. There will be people outside the church who recognize the lunacy of it. 
But we never bring anyone to faith in Christ by telling them, get your act together about this thing, and then maybe you can be a part of us. Did any of you come to faith by such a means? Did you face the fact that, okay, my life is a mess. I'm going to get this all figured out so that I can become a Christian. If that's your story, I don't think you're a Christian. (laughs) Because there's no way to come to faith in Christ that way. We have to come as we are and let Him change us. And when we come to Him honestly, we find things like Matthew 5, verse 27 through 30. Which would be another one to look to if you would like, if you're following along and want to read this one with me. Matthew chapter 5, this is right after what we read last week. He says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. For it's better that you would lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go down into hell. Jesus takes this matter of adultery that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, had taken and said, hey, have you ever cheated on your spouse? No, you're good. You don't have to worry about this commandment. Yay, you're two for seven now because you've never murdered anyone, right? It's very easy for us to look at this in the surface level, just like the last one, and say, okay, I just want to leave that at that. But Jesus, the Savior, who's come to save his people, doesn't come and say, Stop worrying about those Ten Commandments so much. It's not a big deal. I got this. I'm going to make everything okay. Smooth sailing. You guys just continue as you are. I still love you. How our world would love that to be the gospel message. How our hearts would love that to be the gospel message. But it's not. He actually comes in and raises the bar. Anybody ever in track do high jump? This always comes to mind for me. I hated doing high jump so much. All my friends did the long jump. But coach was like, you have to do the high jump because you're tall. Look, I'm like almost 5'11". I'm not not tall right now. I wasn't that tall then. I mean, I was this tall, but pretty sure I stopped in middle school. The point is, I had to do the high jump, and I hated it. And as I was trying to learn the whole technique and throwing myself over the bar, I I landed on the bar every single time. And then my coach came to me with these you know, wonderful words of wisdom. And he says, I think I know what's wrong. You're afraid that you're going to fall off. And I'm like, no, I just don't get it. (laughs) He's like, because you're afraid you're going to fall off. I promise you, you will not fall off. Do you know what happened? Twice? Yeah, I fell off. I fell off the mat. I landed right on the bar, fell right off the mat, and I looked right at my coach afterwards, just for like a split second, because I wasn't confrontational at all then. I'm not very much today either. Just something that seems impossible for us. And Jesus comes in and says, yeah, actually the bar isn't down here. It's actually way up here. And I can remember in track meets, like the two that I actually, you know, went ahead and did the high jump. And I did the first round and I was like, well, I landed on the bar. I messed it all up. And then what do they do? They take the bar and they put it back. I'm like, shouldn't you be putting it down? I couldn't even do the last round. And this is what Christ does for us with the law, as he says, it's not just a matter of what you've done outwardly, it's a matter of what's going on inside your heart. 
Now, we should point out that adultery in the heart and adultery in action are not the same thing, okay? Because there has been, throughout church history, those who have said, well, I've already looked, at, looked with lust in my heart, so why not go ahead and do the thing I'd like to do? I'm, I've already sinned. Well, I think logically we should be able to say, okay, listen, that's not good. There is a difference here. Adultery in action becomes grounds for uh, acceptable divorce, if necessary, from the other party who was offended. But can you imagine how few marriages there would be if we said, hey, if you look with lust, you have to get divorced. It would be the end right there. This is an impossible standard. And so, of course, we want to deconstruct this. Of course, our disordered desires that put ourselves first and God second, thinking that I will find freedom in my own plans, and I'll do with marriage whatever I like because it exists for me, God even said it. It was a good thing. It's supposed to be for me. So let me do what I want with it. Have you ever opened up your computer and gotten that little notification that comes up and says that you have corrupted data somewhere? I don't really even know what that means, so I had to look it up. Wikipedia, the official authority on all things, says that data corruption refers to errors in computer data, which introduce unintended changes to the original data. That's what data corruption is in your computer. And in our hearts, it's not a matter of, of what Jesus is not talking about is, is that first glance that you say, that's a very attractive person. It's the second glance that says, I'd like to think more about that. That's where the corruption starts. That's where an unintended change to the original data occurs where God has said marriage should be between one woman and one man forever in an exclusive covenant, in a, in a pure promise, one to the other, for life. And he, he takes that in such high regard that he is to say that we lose something of that, even with those moments of second glances and the things that might go beyond that, that might grow into addictions. Listen to what St. Augustine says in his confessions. He has a lot to say about this that goes way deeper than I'm going to go today. But he says this in, in one simple phrase, lust indulged became habit and habit unresisted became necessity. That's terrifying to me. We think of habits as little things, not necessities. But Augustine would know. You should look up his story sometime. He would know that this is absolutely true. His habit became a necessity. And he even writes at some points in his confessions about how the thing that he was doing to express this unrighteous desire in his heart became something he almost wished he couldn't do anymore, but he had no choice. It became a necessity. Our disordered desires make something that God forbids into a necessity. And we see the deep rebellion that comes from this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, says, maybe we shouldn't have, maybe we should just go ahead and put the lights all the way up. Joe, would you mind doing that? To your left, sorry. There's a new light switch back there. It's got a dimmer. And yeah, I'm thinking maybe that might be what that is. Let's we'll go ahead and make a big thing about it right now before it happens again. Thank you very much. Okay. I was playing around with it this morning. Bad idea. Martin Lloyd-Jones, right? English preacher, 1940s, 50s. Nowhere, perhaps, as he preaches on Matthew chapter 5, he says, nowhere, perhaps, do we have such a terrible exposure of sin as it really is, as in the words of our Lord at this point. 
He's not saying adultery is the worst sin of all sins, but what he's saying is the weight of what Jesus has said here is so incredibly, and so incredible a burden that who could ever manage to say, yeah, I'm still good. The Pharisees come in and say, hey, have you cheated on your spouse? No, you're good. Jesus comes, and, and we say, okay, yeah, I'm fine. Jesus comes in and says, have you ever looked with lust? Have you ever entertained thoughts in your mind? Can any of us say, yeah, it's still good. Bring it on. What's the next thing? It doesn't go deeper than that. And it's a picture of the sinfulness of our sin. And like I said earlier, we are, I guarantee you this, and I don't know, I don't have any graphics or anything to show for any individual because all of our hearts are different, but we all are closer to wanting an excuse for doing something wrong than we'd actually be willing to admit this morning. And I believe that because I believe God's word. And I believe God's word has an intention beyond just wanting to crush us into powder but to actually raise us up out of that dust and bring us to life in Christ, the one who has bought us by his blood, has redeemed not only this idea of marriage, but all people who put their faith in him. And this is a serious matter that we need to address. Because as we disorder our desires and our hearts, and we tear down the dignity of marriage, we cheapen the blessing of God, And Jesus says that hell is actually at stake in this, as it is with every other sin. But the end of that passage in Matthew chapter 5, he says, look, is your eye making you sin? Tear it out. Is your hand making you sin? Cut it off. It'd be better for you to go into heaven losing a couple of your body parts than to have everything intact and go down to hell. He's not talking literally here, okay? Because this is all a spiritual battle that we're facing. And it's going to start with us looking to him. The one person, the most famous person in all of history who was unmarried, who had the most radical and glorious things to say about marriage. At the cross, Christ has redeemed his wayward bride and he wins her affections by his love, by giving the church something greater to look forward to than the passing pleasures of the world that we could indulge in and enjoy for a moment for just a very brief season. He wants to give us something far beyond that. Because this matter of adultery is not avoidable simply by staying single and it's not avoidable by getting married. It is only avoidable by looking to Christ and knowing that in his word in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, there is no temptation that has come upon you that is not common to everyone and that he has not also made a way of escape. In times past, in regards to this issue and other sin issues in my life, I've often heard that verse and said, If there's a verse in the Bible that I just struggle to believe, it's that God has made a way of escape in every moment of temptation. Because there are times that temptation hits us so hard. But what is this mode of escape? It can be nothing other than Christ. It can be nothing other than looking to him and having just that, that, you know, the really good way of saying it, that moment of just saying, Lord, help. Even if it barely escapes your lips. He answers those calls. I promise you that. He answers our calls for help in any time of temptation, whatever it might be, because he has died for us. If he was that serious about attaining our salvation at the cross, could he be any less serious about preserving it? 
Could he be any less serious about giving you a way to escape temptations? And could he be any less serious about forgiving you when you say no to that way of escape and you give in to the temptation? Augustine, again, to give him a positive quote in the sermon, he says this, you've heard it before, I'm sure, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. We become restless when we battle our temptation, when we see the foe that we really face, the dragon that needs to be slain is far greater than we can face on our own. So we should make no excuses. We should not downplay our sin. But we should recognize that there is nothing in heaven or in all of creation that could separate us from the love of God in Christ. If we will face the fact about what we've done, or what we've thought, or what our past is, or what our intentions for the future are, whatever it might be, we can be forgiven and freed to dignify marriage in a way that glorifies Him, and in a way that, that looks forward to participation in the greater wedding feast of the Lamb. The, what we talked about with the kids, that Christ is the ultimate bridegroom. The church is the ultimate bride. And that's how we find a way to dignify marriage. In Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33, I know we're kind of going around here today, but we got to look at these things. Listen to what Paul gives as a, a pattern to follow for marriage. And listen to why especially. Wives, he says in verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Talk about an offensive verse for 2021. What an incredible thing to ask a woman to submit to her husband. Like, he's better than her. Like, he's, he's going to tell her everything she's supposed to do. He's going to be in charge of everything. He's the decision maker. Is that what Paul's getting to? Or does he say in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The response to verses 22 through 24 and the feminism that has said, I want to throw off everything Scripture has told me about being a woman and about being a wife is responded to in verse 25 where it says, get married to a guy who's going to love you the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Not one that's going to domineer. That's not what the Bible's calling us to submit to, to an authoritarian, but to submit to a self-sacrificial leader because marriage is all about Christ. Verse 25, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Friend, today, if you think that being a part of the church, you're bringing some kind of blemish to the church because of whatever your past has been, he has every intention of cleansing us of all of our unrighteousness so that we together as the church can be this spotless, pure bride for Jesus that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Paul, in this masterful way, takes two illustrations and just smashes them together perfectly here. The body of Christ and the bride of Christ made perfectly one into this expression of the glory of the gospel in marriage. 
This is what he's calling us to, to see what he has redeemed us to. That ultimately, the marriages that we participate in here are going to end because one day we will all together be the bride of Christ for all of eternity. But for now, husbands, wives, you stand on a stage in the world to play out this divine drama and to show us what the love of Christ looks like for his bride. That's a tall order, isn't it? That's the first thing I say in marriage counseling. Are you sure you want to get married? Because I'm going to tell you from Ephesians 5 what God has designed marriage to be. It is a big calling. It is a serious one. It is one that where we have moments where we say, man, I just want to give up. I can find something else to give me joy and satisfaction in life. Jesus says, there is no giving up. This is to death do us part. And when that parting happens... It is not meant to be a, whew, what a relief. Now I don't have that burden anymore. But it is to walk into a deeper blessing. I cannot imagine. I love my wife so much. I could not imagine. And in my, in my, my weak state that I'm in right now, for Jesus to say, hey, your marriage is over. You can say goodbye to Sarah as your wife. I just can't imagine that could be a good thing. I can't imagine how it would function otherwise. And yet... This, this marriage that humans enter into is only a shadow. The substance is in Christ. And so I have hope, as all of us should, that we are not walking away from something, but we're walking into something even deeper and something more beautiful and wonderful. And that's what we need. We need to walk in the joy-driven exaltation of Christ in regards to marriage. That the bride of Christ, the church, should strive for purity and declare to the world her joy in her husband, Christ. Whether married or single, doesn't matter. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In, this, in a practical way, in a, the matter of intimacy, to uh, fight against the matter of adultery, he says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. Why? Verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul was serious about a healthy and loving and sacrificial idea of marriage in a practical sense here. But he also talks to those who are unmarried, and he comes in after that, and he says, now as a concession, not a command, he's not commanding anybody to get married, he's not commanding anybody to be single, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul actually says that in regards to understanding biblical marriage and understanding what it is simply a picture of, it is even it is a good thing to be married, but somehow in a mystery, and it is a better thing, Paul says, to remain single. That there is actually something special for either instance. Either you're playing out this drama, or you're watching it, and you are intimately, and even in one sense, even more exclusively devoted to Christ, though we all should be, right? But Paul says in another place, that without that concern, without that, that task and that joy, in many cases, of course, of, of serving your spouse, you are able to take that energy and drive it towards Christ in service of him. How do we do Matthew 5, 29 through 30? How do we do this whole thing of cutting off our hands and gouging out our eyes? And 
how gruesome and what an incredibly horrifying worship service that would be if that was our application. He's talking spiritually here. He's talking about us looking to Christ. Right? He's talking about us putting our hand to good things. So Spurgeon says, the surest way to abstain from evil is to be fully occupied with doing good. I'm not going to avoid adultery in my heart by locking myself in a closet and closing up my eyes and just waiting for Jesus to come back. I need to be about the good thing that he has for me. I need to be looking to him with the eyes of my heart rather than looking all around the world at whatever I can find, whatever I can consume in my own mind. Again, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. For the new believer, for the seasoned saint, everyone in between, we are called to walk as the bride of Christ, waiting for that wedding feast, preparing our hearts, doing everything we need to in preparation and in waiting for Christ. Even in one sense, as we celebrate communion, we do this until the day of his coming, until he sits at the table with us. We prepare our hearts for that glorious moment. So I want to ask you, are you on guard against lust and adultery in your heart? Is that something that you care to do well with? Is that something that you say, perhaps there's a temptation to say, hey, it's not that big of a deal for me. It's not as big of a deal for me at 33 as it was when I was 21, or whatever situation you may find yourself in. But are you willing to say if it's big enough, it's a big enough issue for Scripture to talk about it and to talk to me about it on a Sunday morning, I'm willing to do what I have to to guard myself because I know in my own heart I'm not as far away from evil deeds as I think I am or as I act like. Walk by the Spirit. Dignify marriage in your heart by looking to Christ and by walking as a part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ here on earth. Making, making him known to everyone, making, making marriage not just a matter of a political issue, but of a theological issue. And as, as an easy doorway to talking about the things of Christ, why is it that Christians are so bothered by how we do marriage, the world might say? Because we love Christ. And because he's the one who made it up to show you how much he loves you. That's the testimony of every believer. He's made me a part of his bride. He's made me new. I want to challenge you to take five minutes this week and get a piece of paper and a pencil and write down the cost of sin in your life. What would it cost you if you had some failure that we all knew about? You know, we're all terrified at the idea of taking these projectors and, and instead of putting up the song lyrics, we put everybody's thoughts up here, right? That would be a horrific thing for us to endure through. And yet, God knows every thought and intention of our hearts and still loves us. And so what would the cost be? What is it that you would lose if you were to fall into some terrible immorality or some, something that you would never expect today, but that might be 10 years down the road, 10 days down the road? We don't know. Take five minutes and consider that. And then consider what God's word says, that you have been bought with a price, bought with the precious blood of Christ, that you don't own yourself, but Christ owns you. Your worth is not in what you own, but all in him alone. We're going to go to communion this morning, and we're going to look at Luke chapter 22, 
verses 14 through 20. And I'm going to pray before we do that, but if you'd like to read along, you can know we'll be in Luke 22. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that we have every reason to be confident because of what Christ has done at the cross, that whatever our past, whatever our present, whatever our future, the fears that we have that are sins that haunt us and that would constantly press us down and say, you're not worthy, you're not worthy, you're not good enough, he doesn't love you. We know that those are lies for those of us who have been bought by the blood of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would work repentance in our hearts. Maybe repentance for for something that we say, oh, this is something I've been needing to deal with for a while. Or maybe for some of us, it's just saying, you know what? I haven't been on guard about this in my heart. I haven't considered this. I may have in some way left myself open in a way that I don't even perceive right now. Lord, we know that you are the guardian of our hearts. You are the the securer of our salvation. You've given us your spirit, Father, as a guarantee, as a seal, and the proof that we are yours. So let us walk in that confidence. Let us walk in that joy and dignify marriage in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our church, in our workplaces, everywhere we are, to think much of what you've established and to walk in light of our marriage to Christ. As the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.